beautiful song, and what a beautiful way to think of this. Last night I had a, a nightmare, and I, I blame my family for this nightmare because we were at a wedding yesterday in Fort Wayne for my nephew, and after we had finished and we were talking, my wife said, you know, we'd been gone all day, and she said, oh, are you ready for the sermon? And then Hawk said, oh, he was preparing for it all week. Now, just to set this up, my wife and my daughter were in Washington, D.C. on an eighth grade trip. So my wife was gone all week. I was a little off kilter. I didn't, you know, she's my better half. And uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And I had to kind of make the food. And you can imagine, you know, all meat, no vegetable. You can imagine what, how that went. So she thought, are you ready? Are you ready? Hawk said, oh, he's ready. He doesn't need his notes. He, he doesn't even, he could just go up there and do it. And I said, whoa, 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 that's not a good idea at all. So last night in the middle of the night, I woke up thinking, I came here. I was in just a t-shirt and shorts. I had no Bible. I had no notes. And they said, it's your, you got to go up there and preach. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I say all of that for this reason, and it made me think of it because Dave prayed for me this morning, and he just said, I pray that he remembers everything he studies. I'm with him on that. I'm with him on that. The Lord was reminding me of this. This is what we're dependent on right here. This is what we need. This is, this is what we can hold to to be true. Dave, in the hour number one, Dave Krumbacher, beautiful message this morning in Sunday school as we're going through the attributes of God um, just a great reminder how, how immovable, unchanging, true, trustworthy, certain our God is. And that we can count on that, that he doesn't change. And because of that, his word doesn't change. And what a great thing that that is. So I have confidence as I stand up here because this is in front of me. My notes are here. Let us not, and I'm not dressed in a t-shirt and shorts either. So I'm, we're good to go. Before we get into to this passage, and you can see on the screen, we're going to be in John chapter 9 this morning. Let me pray as we enter into studying his word. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, and I do thank you that you don't leave me up here alone. That it's your word, it's your Holy Spirit that is helping me and helping us to know your word, to be able to apply your word, to have your word change us, convict us, as it always has, always will. And as we heard in hour one, your son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and we love that. We thank you that your grace is greater than all that our sin. We're thank you that, thankful to you, rather, that, that your son fulfilled all that he should and became all that he was in, in both, being both God and man, fulfilling all of those prophecies to the very bitter end and then defeating death. We thank you for all of these things. And as we study this incredible passage with so much depth about one single miracle and so much controversy and so much discussion, I pray that we can understand that and relate it to ourselves today and, and some of the struggles we may have and uh, maybe some of the things that we bring to the table as we study your word that maybe get in our way. And I pray that we can see with the purity of the Holy Spirit convicting us and showing us and teaching us what you want us to teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John chapter 9, pastor has given me 1 through 41, so I hope you packed the lunch. It's a long day. No, I'm not going to do that to you today. We aren't going to cover the whole thing, but I am going to cover this in three weeks. So three consecutive weeks. You'll have to bear with me for a few weeks. And I'm not even going to read the whole thing today. That would take too long. We're going to cover the first 12 chapters. But let me just, 12 verses rather. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. 
let me just show you how I'm going to break this down for us. This is kind of how, how I see this, and I, to be honest with you, I stole this from a commentary, and I don't which, remember which one, but I like the structure. What I'm going to cover with us today are the first three. And then we'll cover the middle, and then the last, Jesus' identity. I'm going to use that as an exclusive sermon at the end. I think that one bears some, some depth and some meat that I think can stand alone. But we're just going to cover verses 1 through 12 today. And I think that this is a, this is a good thing to do, because when we're looking at this, this is, a, this is a, an interesting passage in the Bible, because we have 41 verses, which is unusual, talking about a single miracle, the ramifications of it, the discussions of it, and then the aftermath of it. Very unique that we have this much content on one particular event like this. And when that happens, I think that 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 deserves our attention, that this is something that that maybe we should be paying attention to. And I, I want you to also keep in mind, as we look at this particular passage, we are just a few months away from the Passion Week at this point in time. As time goes on in John's Gospel, it's very different than the other Gospels, as, as we've already pointed out. Time has, has been clipping away. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that so much time has passed that essentially from the last time pastors spoke of our last message, it's six to eight months have passed in between these two events, as we'll see as we go forward. And I also want you to remind, remind you of this and remind myself of this, what Peter reminded the people of Jerusalem about, which is why these miracles were taking place to begin with. And just to kind of get our head back into it, in Acts chapter 2, after Peter performs this miracle of, of, uh, of speaking in, in different languages after Pentecost and the other apostles as well, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Now, why do I bring this up? I believe that who Peter was talking to in Acts 2, after Pentecost, some of those people, the way he's saying this, could have been present at this miracle that we'll see today. As they're debating in their mind, they're seeing it, Jesus is shifting gears here a little bit. We know that it has to happen. He has to fulfill prophecy. He was beloved by people in the early part of his ministry. Things begin to shift. And he is going to have this populace of Jerusalem and the, the Israelites in, as a whole go from praising his name at the beginning of the Passion Week to calling for his crucifixion by the end. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and with precision. And what Peter is doing in Acts chapter 2 is reminding them these things had to happen. The miracles took place to tell us, tell you who he is, to prove who he is. And so kind of keep that in mind as we go forward. And just to kind of give you a setup on this, John chapter 7, and go back there real quick. I have you in John 9, but go to John 7 real quick. At the very beginning of this, it gives us an introduction, believe it or not, to this section. I know that's a long way. As I mentioned, John's gospel is a little unique. Notice what it says here, and I just want you to, it's on the screen, but I want you to see this. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So this is already, they, they want to kill him, and we already understand why. Pastor talked about this, remember chapter 6, he makes reference to him being this, you know, 
word of life, that, this, the, the, that he is the bread of life, as we come off of these incredible, incredible miracles that we've covered already, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, and then this discussion of, of who he is and that salvation is through him, the idea of him being God in the flesh was quite evident to those who were in authority, and they wanted to kill him, even at the beginning of this. Verse 2, now the Jews, the, the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So it gives us an idea of what's beginning, what's starting, and that tells us a little something here as we go forward. That six-month uh, span of time has passed. The, the feast of booths is in the fall. And so as we go forward in this, and, and, we, and we understand their timing of this, six to eight months has passed as we've looked at this, between essentially chapter 6 and chapter 7 and 8, and the events of chapter 7 and 8. And in reality, of course, we're kind of hustling through chapter 7 and 8, but what Jesus does in chapter 8, to give you a really quick summary, is he just, he just makes them even more mad. He just angers them even more. He frustrates them even more because of his preaching and his teaching. My wife, as, as I mentioned to you, she oftentimes listens to other preachers before she listens to me in the morning, as I've said that before. But she, uh, she mentioned something this morning that we discussed, and it related to first hour. Uh, Vody Bacham was preaching, and he was referencing how Paul encountered the, the people in, in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. And he didn't come to them with um, a kind of a, a, a compromising message about the gospel. He didn't sugarcoat the gospel. He found them where they were, where their deficiencies were, and he presented the gospel as it is, just as it is, full face value. He told them what they needed. This God that you are kind of unaware of, this unknown God, I'm going to tell you who he is. He's the creator of the universe, and he showed himself up here on planet Earth as a man, and he died, and he rose again, and this, this sort of thing. And so what we see is very, very specific and offensive message of the gospel. The gospel's an offense in and of itself. It challenges every sinner, every, every person who hears it, with the fact that they are, they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior that's, that are deficient, that can't do it on their own, and whatever other way they were trying to do isn't going to work anymore. And that's offensive. And, and it's so offensive that it causes people to reject him outright. Well, Jesus spends his time doing this in the next several sections. I want you to notice here, 7 and 8, he starts, as I read to you already, they start by wanting to kill him, and then it ends with them wanting to kill them. Look at 8.59 real quick. Go to John 8.59. It begins, this whole section begins with them wanting to kill him. Verse 59 of chapter 8. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went away out of the temple because he was claiming deity. Remember, this is the famous before Abraham was, I am section. So clearly Jesus isn't making friends here. Jesus isn't trying to to give them a message that they're going to enjoy hearing. He's not tickling their ears. He's, he- he's telling them the truth. The truth that they need to know, that they desperately need to know. Phil Johnson does a great job of summarizing this section, and I'll put this quote up for you, but I'll read it. Here's what, what Phil says. He says, This event occurred at one of the most volatile and dangerous moments of Christ's public ministry. He's in Jerusalem, where the Jewish leaders despised him. In John 8, we have a huge conflict that starts. 
Jesus challenged the Pharisees with practically the most direct and confronting language he ever used against them. In John 8, 44, he tells them, You are of the, your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, even today, that's not politically correct. You're not supposed to say that kind of thing. And they wanted to kill him for it. So Jesus tells them, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is describing the Pharisees' real character in literal terms. This is not hyperbole. It's not a gratuitous insult. He's telling them what's in their hearts. Would you catch that? He's telling them what's in their hearts. When the sinner hears the truth, and he hears the truth from Scripture, which is always true and unchangeable, as we've already heard, they're being, what's being revealed to them is what's really in their heart. What's being revealed to us as believers is what we really are, isn't it? When we read Scripture and we're convicted by it as believers right now, right here, why is that happening? Because God is revealing to us things that he wants to work on in our lives. The Bible is a, is a mirror for us to see our deficiencies, to see the holiness and perfection of our God, the standard, and where we fall short, and why we want to continue to pursue Him. We understand that walking with Christ is much more than just salvation. Justification is essential and beautiful. The ultimate glorification that happens at the return of Christ, I cannot wait. But in the process, in between this progressive sanctification, God is working on us, and he's changing us, and he's making us into what he wants us to be. So as we look at this, and as we go back to John chapter 9, consider the situation. Consider the setup here. Consider what, what Christ is in. He isn't making friends, but he's making a point. He isn't, he isn't trying to, to gain followers that are temporary. He's trying to lay down a gauntlet, and that's what we're going to see here. So let me read, as we look through this, John chapter 9, 1 through 12, we'll take a look at this as a whole, and then we'll break it down into sections. So let me read this 1 through 12 as a section. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, and keep in mind now, he was just easing his way out of getting stoned to death. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud, with the mud, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used, to be, who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Isn't that a funny kind of way that that, that interacts? But that's our, te- that's our text today. What a fascinating passage. And as we think of the context, Jesus is still doing his work, fulfilling his mission, and accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. So as we look at this, I want you to consider this. 
as we think back, and Pastor and I have both quoted this verse a few times, John chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but feel free to look at the reference if you feel like it. I'm not going to bring it up. John 2, 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, to the people around him, to those who were just feigning following him, those who were just kind of on the surface fans of him, he didn't entrust himself to them or or these Pharisees or leaders or even some of these neighbors because he knew all people. Jesus knows you, he knows me, and he knows all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And as we go back to this quote from Phil Johnson, isn't that telling? He's telling them what's in their hearts. He's telling them what's in their hearts. God knows man, he knows you, and he knows me. Every time we open this book, he knows you. Every time we study this and we do it with an open heart, he knows you and he knows your heart and he knows where you need to be. And he knows his apostles too, by the way. As we see a shift in his ministry, we see a hyper-focus on his apostles, preparing them for the ministry that is to come. And we'll see that in a few different elements today. So as we look at this, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a theological misunderstanding. We're going to see a misunderstanding, and by the way, we can fall into this category too, can't we? We can get things wrong sometimes too. I I hate to listen to myself teaching from 10, 15, 20 years ago because I've been teaching the Bible a long time now. And I'm going to say that I'll probably hate, and I won't, I won't do it, but listening to myself today in 10 years because um, I keep learning. And if I keep learning, that means I didn't always have it right. And I'll bet you can confess the same thing. But as we look at this, his apostles had a, a, a flawed thought on what was going on. Just to remind ourselves of this, Remember the question they're asking Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents? They're coming in with the assumption that somebody had to have sinned for this to happen. They're coming in with this flawed idea, this misunderstanding that came from their teaching. And in truth, they're going to tell you, if they were here today, they would have told you it came from the Word of God. They thought it did anyway, or this, their misunderstanding of it. And Jesus immediately corrects them with not much depth, but he says it was not this man that sinned or his parents. He said, this this happened. And he's trying to turn their minds around to what you interpret as bad and horrible and horrific. This may be for my plan, for my glory, for my purpose. They're going to have to see this in a very real way in just a few months when Christ is hanging on that cross. That, That is inconceivable for them. As a matter of fact, Peter said, you can't do that. I won't let you do that. And you know what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. He didn't understand. But their, their vision of, of this temporary life that we're in, and that it all has to go smoothly, and if it does, that means God's blessing is on you. If it doesn't, that means you've done something wrong. That's something that God had to change. Chuck Swindoll has this to say about this. The disciples' questions reflected a common misunderstanding of sin in first century Judaism, but I'd say it goes to today as well. One that is sadly common to today in this day as well. The disciples saw the man's affliction as just the just penalty of someone's sin, either his own or that of his parents. It's human nature to find someone to blame. Further on in his discussion of this, He says, as the story unfolds, we learn that their chance meeting has been scheduled since the beginning of time. This is something God had always had a plan of. Uh, Dave this morning made mention of plan A. I say it a lot too. God has always had plan A. He doesn't have a plan B. Plan A is still continuing. Plan A has always been, and plan A is perfect, and it is sovereign. Anyway, this isn't a chance meeting. 
It had been scheduled since the beginning of time, and the man's meaningless affliction had been given divine purpose from the foundation of creation. Wow. This man had been born blind, and it was the plan of God from the very beginning that this is how it was going to be. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Let me show you why they had this misunderstanding. In part, there are many places I could take you. This is one of them. But Ezekiel chapter 18. They would have known this passage. They would have embraced this passage. There are messianic passages in the, in the, the book of Ezekiel. As we think of Ezekiel, and we think of so many things, we've studied him here. And we consider him to be one of these very unique prophets that speak of things that others don't. But one of the consistent things he speaks of is sin. And sin is a common theme throughout Scripture. So Ezekiel chapter 18, and the, this whole section, this whole chapter is about sin and the soul who sins. But let me pick it up in verse 14 now. Suppose this man's father fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppose, oppress rather anyone, exact, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, uh, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has has done what is just and right, and has done carefully to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteousness shall be upon himself, and the wickedness upon the wicked shall be upon himself. Continuing on, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins, and he's committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So you get the sentiment here. I mean, it's a principle we would agree with, that we should turn from our sins, repent, and this would please the Lord. He would want us to do this. But as you look at this, a Jewish person who would understand this would say, oh, there's consequences for sin, and when we see terrible consequences in life, we've got to make a direct connection here. There, there must be a sin of the father, a mother, maybe him, there's certainly somebody's a sinner, and that's why this is happening. I hate to say this, but we, you'll even hear this in Christendom today. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard this before. I, I can recall a person who, a friend of ours many, many years ago, she, she died of cancer 20 years ago, and uh, there was another person who, who, who's a believer who said, well, that could never happen to me because I'm walking with the Lord. I could never get cancer like she did because I'm walking with the Lord. Heard it with my own ears. Because he believed that, oh, this is what this means. That's what I'm, I believe that I, this, it's because I'm walking right, this could never happen to me. And I, I kind of at that moment wished I could be right next to him when he was taking his last breath and said, what did you do today that got you into this situation, my man? Because something must have happened or you were supposed to live forever. But that's a misunderstanding that people still have. And you'll hear Christians saying that. Or things like, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. 
you didn't pray right. You didn't play hard, pray hard enough, or you're, you must be doing something. Now, these things are dangerous to play with, and, and let me un- make sure that we don't misunderstand. There are times where that's the case. I want you to notice here what the Apostle Paul says. There are times where God brings difficulty in our life for a purpose. We know this very well. I don't want us to spend too much time on this, but he shows us that it's not always like that. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. This wasn't a punishment so much as bad things happened to Paul and we don't know what the thorn was. It was to keep him from being arrogant. He had an opportunity to, to be in the presence of God outside of the body and he, it was mind-blowing and he, he, he was... He was certainly feeling a little bit of special because he got to do that and nobody else did. And God didn't want him to be that way. He wanted him to be humble. And so he brings him difficulty. This wasn't because of a sin, but it was because of a potential sin or maybe a sin that was starting to creep up. So there are times like that that we see it. But Jesus tries to reset us. Go to Luke 13 with me real quick. Go to Luke 13. This misunderstanding that we see throughout Scripture happened uh, and, and, and was kind of deep-seated in the Jewish mindset, even though there are times where God brings us difficulty, and Paul could see that, there are also other times where this is, uh, this is just to get us in a reality of what we should be thinking of. In Luke chapter 13, I use this passage quite often when tragedy strikes. I use this with students when school shootings happen or when some sort of a terrorist attack takes place. I always go to this passage because it's an important one when we consider how God thinks of things. And when we see tragedy, what our mind should go to. And you'll see what I mean by this. So I'm trying to kind of paint a picture of how we should think properly about this. Here's the situation. The, the, the people are coming to Jesus because they see him as this great healer, sympathetic, kind, loving, and he was all of these things. Powerful. Some of these people came to him probably thinking he was God. Certainly the Messiah. And there was a tragedy that took place, as a matter of fact, a horrific one, especially from the Jewish mindset. There were those who were trying to worship in the temple, and Pilate ordered that they be killed. And when they were killed, their blood mixed with the sacrifice. That's a huge deal for the Jewish people, and they're bringing it to Christ. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? Jesus levels them with a few different points that he makes. Let's take a look at the text. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them not, oh, I'm so sorry. He answered them not, oh, I'm going to go get those Romans for you. Oh, now it's my time to overthrow them. Now I'm going to establish my kingdom. That's the last straw. Or... I know you're struggling with some mental health right now. I'm going to just ease your pain here. He doesn't say that. Okay, here's what he says. He answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they they suffered in this way? Why does he say that? Because of the deep-seated bad theology that they had. They thought bad things only happen to bad people who are sinning, so that must be what's going on here. And Christ says, no, that's not the deal at all. Okay, but he doesn't he doesn't try to comfort them, and he doesn't try to fix the problem. Notice, he gives them the solution that everybody's got to hear. Listen to this. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What does he mean? That they're going to all have their blood mingled with the sacrifice? No. 
He means they're going to die in their sins, and that's the biggest problem you got. My biggest problem, going back to that quote, is my heart. What's your biggest problem? Your heart. What's my biggest problem outside of the grace of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, is that I'm lost in my sins and I'm headed for hell. That's my biggest problem. Is Jesus being unsympathetic? Is he not caring about their concerns or their stresses or the anxiety? Of course not. We know what Jesus tells us to do. Cast your cares on me, I care for you. Be anxious for nothing. Through prayer and petition, let your request be made known to me with thanksgiving, of course. He loves us, cares about us, but he cares about us so much that he gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? He gets to the real problem. It's not our mental health, and we can have that. It's not our difficulties or our struggles. It's, these, these things are real. It's our sin, and he gets to the heart of it. He doubles down. Then he tells them another story. He brings this one up. How about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the rest who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Jesus was fixing a problem with their theology, but he was getting them to the heart of the matter too. It's about repentance. And in our story today, it'll take a couple weeks, but we're going to get to that too. Because the man who was healed of, of being blind, that's not his biggest problem. His sight is not his biggest problem. That's a temporary problem. It's a bad one. And I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. But it's not his biggest problem. His biggest problem was his sin. His biggest problem was that he didn't know the Savior. His big, biggest problem was his fate in eternity. That's what his biggest problem was. Now, I want to add something to this. Not only is, it, is there sin that, that God would, might want to deal with like he did with Paul, there are times where our sin can take us to another direction. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I'll say this in my notes. I have a, a kind of a transition. However, there are times that John will tell us, and Paul as well, that we do need to be careful about what we're doing. Notice what John says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sin that do lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, what's John referencing here? Well, it's a tough one. There is not a particular individual sin like uh, adultery, homosexuality, murder, or, you know, robbery. It's not that. What is, what is John saying here? Well, there's times, and we've discussed this here before in different lessons and in different sermons, where God may say, yeah, you know what? We're done. This is it. We've, we've hit the end. I'm going to use you as an example. Do you want an example of that? Ananias and Sapphira is a good one. Ananias and Sapphira, in my view, are, were believers in Christ, Acts chapter 5. They wouldn't have claimed Christ at that time if they weren't. What did they do? Well, they lied about their finances. Let's just make it real simple. They tried to take God's glory for serving the Lord. And if you think, oh, those terrible people, you may have done that once or twice too. Have you done something in the name of Jesus Christ so people will pat you on the back? That's what their biggest problem was here. Oh, it, it was a money issue, certainly, but they were trying to take God's praise, His glory. And every time we serve the Lord, maybe starting out with the right intentions, but then we see, ooh, this is making people like me. This is, people think a lot of me. Think, people are giving me a lot of credit. And you begin to take the praise of man without redirecting that to the Lord, 
you're committing the same sin. But you're still breathing. I notice. You're all, well, most of you are still breathing. I haven't gone too long yet. Most of you are still breathing this morning. So God didn't kill you, but he killed them. For what? An example. I want you to, to note about that story. I just taught this to my seniors this week. The result of that is fear fell on the whole congregation. They learned their lesson. They paid attention to that. Fear should, and, it, and everyone who heard it, it says in Acts chapter 5. So as we think of this, a sin that leads to death, what is that? Well, I can't tell you. But if God said, listen, I'm going to make an example of you today. Your sin could lead to death. It's a possibility that could happen. And as famously, we know what, what Paul says about taking the elements of the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. We know that it says this, chapter, 20, or chapter 11, verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats the, and drinks judgment on himself, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So God does do this. But in general, okay, and what Jesus is trying to tell us here is something bad happening to you is not necessarily a direct result of God's judgment on you. All of us are sinners. I don't go two minutes without sinning. If this principle were always working, I would, wouldn't be able to walk if God were just afflicting me every single time I made a mistake. Every careless thought, every careless word. Every bad attitude, every time I lost my cool, every time I actually got behind the wheel of my car, if any of you have seen me drive, I wouldn't be able to survive. So clearly we have a God of grace, and we don't want to misunderstand this. I want to hyper-focus on the end of chapter or verse 3. Notice what it says here if we go back to John. So you're in Luke. Go back to John chapter 9 as we kind of work through this. It says this in John 9 at the end of verse 3. This is why this happened. This is the reason for this. It says, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but it's that the work of, works of God might be displayed in him. This is for God's glory. I want you to just kind of take a step back from everything that happens in your Christian life. Okay? Everything that you've learned, everything that you've accomplished, everything you've seen God do, every miracle that's taken place in and around your life, Every time you've heard the gospel, every time you've heard, heard or seen people give their testimony, every time you've seen somebody preach, teach, serve, go on a mission field, it's all for one thing, for God's glory. That's why it happens. That's why it was motivated. That's why the Holy Spirit convicted. Every time you continue in progressive sanctification, it's for his glory. When every sinner repents, it's for his glory. When he returns for his own, it's for his glory. When he establishes his kingdom, it's for his glory. Are you guys getting the idea? Everything is for his glory. And as we heard in our number one, and we heard so well, God is self-sufficient, but he's also self-exalting. Remember hearing that? That the Father exalts the Son, the Son exalts the Father, Holy Spirit exalts both of them, but specifically the Son. That he does this for his own glory. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 wasn't quoted this morning, but he quoted Romans 3 which uh, 36, which is a very similar passage. And it says this, for by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him, even blind men, even you, and your afflictions and your difficulties and the things that you have, everything that's going on in your life, were created through him, for him. 
for what? For his glory. This is what this whole story is about. This is what all 41 verses are about. They're for his glory. I want you to notice when Jesus performs, or just before he's going to perform, an incredible miracle with Lazarus. In John chapter 11, this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but John chapter 11, he's speaking here, and he's speaking to Martha, and he says, so the sisters sent him saying, Lord, he, he whom you love is ill. Lazarus is sick. So Mary and Martha are telling this, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, will he die temporarily? Yes. When Jesus said it won't lead to death, he means, listen, this isn't so that he'll die. It's so that I can show my power. It's so that I can show my glory. It's so that I can show my deity. This happens for a reason. This temporary pain and suffering, all of you will go, to, go through Mary, Martha, certainly Lazarus. This is for my glory. It, it's not because of the death. It's not for death. It's for my glory. That's the whole purpose. Now as we shift gears now, look at what he does. In the middle of this, he teaches them a little bit. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5, back to John 9. Here's what Jesus then says about this. This is for my glory. It's for my purpose so I can be displayed, my works. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So we see this, Jesus using some terminology, giving us some visuals, really. So look at this. It says, it's day, contrasting that to night. There's going to be a time where that's coming. Working in the day, and him being the light of the world. A lot of imagery that we have here. Well, where does this come from? It comes from prophecy. Jesus is tapping into who he is, what was predicted about him, and we can see this in Isaiah in particular. I'm going to bring this up on the screen, and I'm putting two together. You can notice with the dots. I'm taking Isaiah 42, 1 through 2, and then skipping to 6 and 8. Not that the, in, the information in the middle isn't good or relevant, but for our purposes, we're going to take a look at this. Here's what he's saying about this suffering servant that's coming, this Messiah that's coming. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the people. Notice this, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. Interesting. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners, those who sit in darkness. Interesting. I'm the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, we got a combination of things going on from verse 3 in John 9 to verse 5. His glory, light and darkness, and opening up the eyes of the blind. Interesting when we see this. And as we fast forward, we know so famously John 3, 16 and 17. But look at John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the primary text that so many people miss after reading John 3.16. That it sounds so good when we read John 3.16. And God did love the world, and he does love the world, and he did give his only Son. Whoever believes in him is saved, no doubt about it. But unfortunately, there's a bad end to that stick. And that's those who don't believe. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Notice that contrast, light and dark, light and dark. It's the visual Jesus is giving us. And then as we go back, as we think of this in John 8, John 8 we look at this again, and, and, we, and we see this visual again Jesus is giving. Remember, he's aggravating the leaders of Israel when he says these things. But he says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, and this really connects to first hour, the Father bears witness about the Son, the Son of the Father. They give glory to one another. Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You don't know I come from the Father. You don't understand this. You don't get it. You don't see it. And here, how, this is how Paul puts it together in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if it's, it's not seen by people, and by the way, the gospel was veiled to you as well, believer, until the Lord revealed it to you. That came from above. It was veiled to you as well. You were once in darkness. None of you were born in light. Not a one of us. We were all walking, stumbling around, trying to find our way, even if you were just a little kid when you got saved, when the Lord saved you, or an adult, you're wandering around trying to find your way. It was veiled, but notice it's only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Man, all of this light-darkness imagery, it really hits home. We understand what darkness looks like. We understand it's tough to get around in the dark. As a matter of fact, so many people are afraid of the dark because of the uncertainty of the dark. The whole idea of it, the, the whole concept of inventing a nightlight for a child is to abate the fear. And what we see is, remember what Christ says about what we hear about Christ in Hebrews, that perfect love casts out fear, for, for, for fear has to do with judgment. But our God has saved us. Here's what Swindoll says about this. This provides a glimpse into the true significance of their encounter with this blind man. Note that this theme is repeated several times in the gospel. I gave you a few. The point is that this man's physical blindness is representative of far greater blindness. Inflicting uh, this man's physical blindness represents far greater blindness. Inflicting not just one man, but all of humanity as well. You and me and everybody. It is the blindness of the soul that characterizes all men and women apart from the saving grace of God. Therefore, what Jesus was about to do for this man would display in some glorious and mysterious way what he can do for all those who believe in him. In other words, Christ's claim to be the light of the world will be powerfully verified by the miracle soon to come. We're going to see this happen. And then he mentions this idea of his light while it's day. Paul makes reference of this in Galatians 6. I'll bring it up on the screen for you. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity. This particular Greek word is carrion, and carrion, and we're going to see it in the very next verse in Ephesians, in English it looks different in both of them. Notice carrion here, that's how that sounds in English. This word opportunity, it's, it's, it should be looked at this way. It's a it's supposed to be thought of as a distinct, fixed time period rather than just occasional moments. So when you think of opportunity, what, what Paul's trying to get across to you, and, and we're going to see the same thing here, and I'll bring it up in Ephesians 5, he says here, making the best use of the time, notice the same Greek word, 
He uses time here. Here he uses opportunity. In both cases, what Paul's referencing is making the world know what you have been saved from and how you got saved. You tell them the gospel. In other words, you talk to them about the light that came into the world while you have time. This may, this may be a shock to some of you, but when you stop breathing, you won't be able to tell anybody about Jesus anymore. I know it's, it's, a, it's a long shot, but that's not going to happen anymore. And here's another one. I don't think you know when you're going to stop breathing. So you need to make the best use of your time to make the light known while it's day. While it's day. Now, he's also making a point here when he makes reference to these two things, going back to this passage, that while we look at this, this I'm going to have to way too back. There we go. Right here, that I'm the light of the world where we can work and when, is, when it's night, he is making reference to his death and then his resurrection and then the fact that he's going to ascend and the apostles are going to be on their own. He is trying to get them the idea that there is going to be a time where he's not with them. All of those things are true. But I think the big lesson here for us is most certainly make the best use of that time while you're able, while you can, to proclaim the, the truth and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light is in the world. All right, let's move on to the miracle. Incredible miracle that's about to take place. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Interesting. Came back seeing. So we look at this and we think, wow, why mud? Why saliva? It's a very interesting thing to consider. Here's what some people theorize about, that Christ literally made new eyes for him and put them in. Now, I don't know about that. It's a possibility. He doesn't need to do that. But remember how we were created. He formed man out of dust from the ground. Now, we don't see God the Father spitting here in Genesis chapter 2. We don't see that happening, but he does use dirt. And so maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Maybe it's just um, the unique, I don't know, the unique story of it, just to make us remember it. You know, the uniqueness of the story, that's a possibility. So could that be? Is it because it's gross in our minds or we think it's kind of disgusting? I, I don't know. I went through many commentaries. MacArthur has a, a great way to see. He went through, he, he, in his commentary, he goes through all of these options and at the end his conclusion was, I don't think any of these are true. I have no idea. I said, well, that's not a lot of help, John, but appreciate it. So he didn't give me a lot of insight on this and I think the whole point is, I, I don't know. Now, as I think about the saliva concept, why saliva? He's done this a few times. Jesus uses spit a few other times. He does this with a deaf man who could hardly talk. And in that case, in Mark chapter 7, he puts his fingers in his ears. Now, some think that was so that he would understand he was about to heal his, his deafness. Then he spits on his finger and touches the man's tongue, and he heals him. In another case, he spit on the man's eyes right into his face. And again, there's a lot of speculation about this, and I've heard a lot of answers that I didn't think that were that great. You know where I heard the best description of this was from my son. So we're sitting there at dinner on, I don't know, Saturday maybe of last week. I'm not sure if it was that. I was already pro kind of planning this. And I said, what do you guys think about this? Why, why would Jesus spit? And Hawk came with, up the, with this idea. He says, I think it's this. Spitting is considered disrespectful. 
As a matter of fact, we even see that Christ was spit upon in his trials. And as they were mocking him and spitting at him and humiliating him. And at the time, it was considered that way. And Jesus turns what's so disrespectful into something that's a blessing. It even made me think of when he said that, that Jesus, what, what men think are, is, is, is disgusting and, of, and, and, and unwise and, and maybe, maybe uh, not honorable, God uses for his glory. And that's us, by the way. That's what we are, too. God doesn't choose what is wise in this world. He uses what is unwise to shame the wise. And I think there's something to be said about that. But think about the gospel. It's offensive to people. It's disrespectful to people. The gospel itself, uh, people don't like it on the surface. And, and as they go deeper into it, they don't, they don't like it. It's unpleasant, and it hurts them. And maybe there's something to that. The answer to this question is, I don't know, but it makes you remember the story. It makes you remember the account. And it's certainly personal. It certainly means something to this man. And when this happens, he obeys him. I think in spite of this, we could see a lesson about this, where this miracle takes place. We have other miracles like this, where blind receive sight. There's about seven of them. Some debate that it's six. The reason I say six is because some say these are the same. I think they're separate. You have two here and one here, and I think he healed three men in a, a matter of a few hours of this same thing. These are the ones we know about. But Jesus healing the blind is a common event. And I think it's a common event because it's so relevant to us, spiritually speaking, as we've talked about. Here's the location that this happened. They've discovered this. And this is connected to the water source that Hezekiah dug out as the Assyrians were on the, the gates at, at the gates and were about to invade with Sennacherib. And he didn't want them to get water, and we see this in Second Chronicles 32. And this is probably what we're dealing with here. They've, they've uncovered this. This is the exact place. This is probably where he went. I don't know if it looked exactly like that at the time. And you can kind of see this is the distance that we're dealing with. This is the Gihon Spring where it would have come from. And so this is kind of the location and where he would have gone. That's the distance he would have covered, just to kind of give you a mindset, a, a visual on this. Well, there's prophecy to this, too. Another prophecy with Isaiah 35 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Not only is there a, a uh, spiritual element to this, but he really will make blind people see. It's a proof that he's, in, he's the Messiah. He is God incarnate. So certainly there is a, 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 a literal interpretation of Isaiah 35, and then there was a spiritual to Isaiah 42. We see both of those, the spiritual blindness, the physical blindness, as we've talked about. Now, let's talk about this neighbor's inquiry. Let's finish this up. Let me land the plane. 8 through 12. This, to me, is the most comical of the bunch. I just, I, every time I read it, it kind of makes me laugh, because these people don't quite know what's going on, but they can't believe it, and it's so amazing that they almost refuse to believe it. It's, it's one of these things. And keep in mind now, Christ had performed many miracles at this point. He had had a long ministry, and he had fame, yet it was still unbelievable to them. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. And he kept asking, I am the man. He kept saying, I'm the man. And I assume he just kept interrupting them, I'm the man. And so they said, then how are your eyes opened? Like he would know this, right? How did this happen? He answered, the man called Jesus. And by the way, somebody must have told him that. Somebody must have said, 
that it was Jesus never says that, hey, my name's Jesus and I'm healing you. Somebody must have done that. Or he heard about Christ, his fame. Here's why I say this. I think everybody really knew who did this. Who else was doing this? Were there a lot of people performing miracles, healing the blind and making the deaf hear and making the lame walk? I don't have any other historical records of this happening. I think they knew it. I think people know it now. I want to just stop here for a minute. I think people know now, right? I think we live in a world and an era of the time period that we live in today where people have heard the name of Jesus. We have two major holidays a year in our country. People know the name of Jesus. They kind of understand what we preach, what we teach. It isn't an an outright ignorance of it. Now, that that is not an excuse for you not to tell people about Jesus. You are obligated. It is your calling. It's your commission. But our world that we live in, in a modern-day America, they kind of know what's going on. It's, willful, it's not willful ignorance, it's willful rebellion. And I think these people knew too. Let's get back to the text. So they're making excuses. They can't believe this. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He said, a man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. I know this happened, but I don't know. Now, this is a similar re- reaction that we see later on with John and Peter when they healed the lame man in front of the temple. Don't want to read this whole section. Just want to notice the reaction. The people's reaction is similar. They're amazed. It's wonder. And notice, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now, remember, same reason the miracle happens with Jesus performing it is the reason why Peter and John are performing it here with the lame man. This is for the purpose of salvation. It's the purpose of God's glory. Jesus is going to be glorified, and people are going to get saved. It's, it's, just, it's just the way it always works. And by the way, when you proclaim the name of Jesus and make the light shown in darkness, God's going to be glorified, and people are going to get saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and it's people like us that he uses to do that. But notice, they're filled with wonder. But then they also do what we're going to see in John 9, verse 13. They're going to go to the Pharisees, because that's who they think is going to have the answers. And when the Pharisees get a hold of of Peter and John, their reaction is going to be the same as what we're going to see next week, too. Notice the reaction in Acts chapter 4. They say this. They say, we got this man right here, verse 14, seeing the man who was healing standing beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition. Going back here, they see this man. They're arguing about that. There's nothing they can say. They know it's him. They may be talking about, they've seen him for years. He's been blind since birth. They've seen this man before, and he's telling them, I'm the guy. I'm him. They understand the visual evidence. It's right in front of them. But what do they do? We can't deny it. Look at verse 17, though, of of Acts chapter 4. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone at this time. They know it's true. They know what Jesus has done. They know what they did to Jesus. They know the power that the apostles have. And what is their focus? They're going to mess up our plan. They're going to mess up our kingdom. They're going to mess up my life. Because the gospel's offensive. The gospel's hard to hear. The gospel's difficult to, to take in and accept and repent. And I want to end with this. 
the Apostle Paul understood this maybe better than anybody. If you know anything about his conversion, we know at his conversion he was blinded for three days. I don't think that was an accident. I think that was a physical thing that happened to him to remind him of what spiritual thing was happening to him. That the veil was going to be removed, what he wrote about in Galatians and Ephesians earlier on, the idea of spiritual blindness, the concept of this, this was real to him, and it was going to have something that was going to stick with him. But notice what he says later on, much later in Paul's life, Acts chapter 26. I'd like to end here. Notice what he says. He says this, he's retelling to Agrippa his conversion story, and and I told you a little of it. But after Christ encounters him, he says, but rise and stand up on your feet. This is Jesus speaking to, to Paul. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Notice what he's, he's supposed to do, and this is for you too, Christian, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, the whole purpose of a story like this is salvation. Is it to establish who Christ is? You bet. You bet. But he's glorified in his salvation plan. Jesus Christ loves his salvation plan. He loves it so much, he wrote it, lived it, died for it, and then defeated death for it. He loves the plan of salvation because it's his. And it always has been. And you get this incredible opportunity in these pathetic jars of clay that we are to take the light to the world that's dark, to share with them stories like this, to understand that we know people haven't changed. They're going to make all kinds of excuses. They're going to see the accounts of Christ. They're going to hear the the biblical accounts. They're going to see the proof, and they're going to make every excuse under the sun. It is our job to say, no, no. No, no, no. Let me encounter you with Christ. It's your time. It's your moment to repent and believe. See the light. Jesus is the light and he's coming back. What an incredible opportunity that we have. So as we look at this and transition into the next section and we look at these Pharisees and their reaction, this week our focus is, how about those neighbors? Those neighbors that are trying to make excuses, they're ready. The, the field is ready, ripe for harvest. Harvest. And these, many of these people, i got to believe, many of these people after this miracle, they're going to believe in Christ, and they're going to put their faith in Christ. Maybe some of them with Peter and John in Acts chapter 2 and 3. Who knows? That, that opportunity for us is right there for the taking. And Christ has given it to you. What a blessing, and to his glory, that takes place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage. We thank you for the conviction that we have that the principle, the, the primary reason for all of this event is for your glory. And what glorifies you so much is that the sinner repents and believes. What glorifies you is the work of your son. What glorifies you is believers who are, who are now redeemed to walk in your way and to proclaim that truth. We thank you that you've given us light, that you've given us uh, sight when we were once blind. We thank you that you've removed the veil. And we thank you that we now have the opportunity to share that with others. I pray that we do that with love, kindness, but with boldness, with truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.